You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 46, The Trilemma. After Hours with Jimmy Aiken. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've worked our way through the four loves. We then had Ecumenism Month, where we interview people from diverse religious backgrounds who all love Lewis. And we're now in Apologetics Month, where we're examining some of Lewis's favorite arguments for clear thinking, theism, and Christianity. And today, we're going to be talking about Lewis's famous trilemma, with the one, the only, Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken is an internationally known speaker and author of many books, such as A Daily Defense, The Fathers Know Best, and The Drama of Salvation. As a senior apologist at Catholic Answers, he has 30 years of experience in defending and explaining the faith. He is a weekly guest on the national radio program Catholic Answers Live, as well as several podcasts, including Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. And not only that, he also recently debated and high-fived skeptical scholar Dr. Bart Ehrman. Jimmy Aiken. Welcome to Pints with Jack, and may the fourth be with you. May the force be with you also, <laughs> just to make it clear what that reference is to. Yes, we're recording on May the 4th. Mm-hmm. I got so excited when I realized that our interview coincided with that, because let's face it, you're a bit of a nerd, and so mm-hmm. um, I just thought that was just perfect. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you mentioning the high five with Bart Ehrman. As far as I know, I'm the only uh, apologist ever to do that. Um <laughs> I should probably explain the context for that. So I was debating Bart Ehrman on the uh, reliability of the Gospels, and I was determined uh, not only to, you know, uh, kick his butt, but also to um, be as nice as humanly possible. And so I had pre-planned moments of friendliness in the debate. And one of them was I pointed out to the audience that he had actually written a book defending the existence of Jesus against Jesus mythicists. And I thought he deserved credit for that. So I had the audience give him a big round of applause. And then since we weren't far apart on the stage, I did what I planned, which was walk over to him and say, Jesus of Nazareth existed. High five. And he gave me a high five. (laughs) And I went, yeah. So as far as I know, I'm the only one to ever high-five Bart Ehrman during a debate. <laughs> that, is, that is quite an achievement. Now, our paths have crossed a couple of times before. Uh, you worked with my wife, Marie, when we lived in San Diego. And yeah. when my friend Anne got married, I was master of ceremonies at her wedding reception for no other reason than I have an English accent. And you were calling the square dancing. Yes, she decided she wanted square dancing at uh, at her wedding reception, and since I'm a, I call a bunch of forms of dance, including square. I was happy to do that. And you are the obvious choice for today's episode, since it covers it covers a number of areas of apologetics, and as far as I can tell, you're basically an expert in everything. So I want to get your expert <laughs> opinion. Since we're recording on Star Wars Day, who shot first? Han. It was clearly Han, hands down. The records have been doctored to make it look otherwise. (laughs) That is a perfect answer. (laughs) Well, in honor of Star Wars Day, I had intended to be drinking blue milk, but I then forgot to pick up some food coloring from the store, so I just have a regular glass of boring colored milk. Uh, Jimmy, do you have anything to sip on? I have, it's actually transparent, but it's flavored orange. I have orange Zevia soda. 
Okay, well, today we are toasting Patreon supporter Megan Prowl. Megan, we raise our glass to your good health. May you always speak the truth, be of sound mind, and reverence in your heart Jesus Christ as Lord. Cheers. Cheers. I shared a few brief highlights in the introduction, but could you just please introduce yourself a little bit more to the listeners and just tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So, um, well, to quote my uh, personal personal brain care specialist, Gag Halfrunt, well, he's just this guy, you know. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was born in Texas. I grew up in Arkansas. I now live in San Diego in the extreme lower left-hand corner of the United States. Um, I have been working for Catholic Answers. I'm in my 30th year now. Uh, my 30th anniversary will be in uh, in June of 2023. Um, so I am a Christian apologist and a Catholic apologist. I also have a lot of other interests. I do, you mentioned podcasts, um, like I do uh, not only Catholic Answers Live and Catholic Answers Focus, I also regularly appear on SQPN Secrets of Star Wars and Secrets of Doctor Who. But the one I'm best known for is called Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. And every Friday, we look at a mystery could be a natural mystery, could be a supernatural mystery, could be a paranormal mystery. And we look at it from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. And unlike other mystery-oriented shows, we don't just try to generate wonder and, you know, what if, just imagine <laughs> if this ridiculous thing were true. We actually try to solve the mysteries to the extent they can be solved. So uh, we've got about 100,000 about 100, listeners. And so check out Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. I was recently on Trent Horn's podcast reviewing some of his dialogues, and he was speaking with one guy that was arguing that Fatima was caused by aliens. Oh, and really? I told, yes. I told Trent, yeah. call Jimmy, get him in there now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, uh, there have been references, in, especially in the 1970s, in the UFO literature to Fatima and other BVM, for Blessed Virgin Mary, BVM encounters that that people tried to link to aliens. However, there is no good evidence for that. <laughs> well, this is a C.S. Lewis podcast. So at what point in your faith journey did you come across C.S. Lewis? Uh, well, in childhood. Um, my mom uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia to us, and I loved the Chronicles of Narnia. I thought they were awesome. I, was, I went through a Chronicles of Narnia phase as a child. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, my family was nominally Protestant. And so I didn't really have the religious background to appreciate what Lewis was doing with the Christian faith in the Chronicles of Narnia. The first time through, I just completely missed the fact that, that Aslan is Jesus. <laughs> and I missed, you know, uh, the redemption uh, symbolism with the the stone table and so forth. And so um, it wasn't until after I'd read them that uh, that someone I knew, another a child who was slightly older than I was, who had more of a Christian background, pointed that out to me. And I was like, what? Really? And I looked and I was like, yeah, okay, that's true. Um, and then I re-encountered C.S. Lewis. So it, because I was only nominally Protestant, I didn't have religious education, and in my teenage years, I became a New Ager. But then um, a, when I was 20, I began to experience a conversion to Christ, and that was when I re-encountered Lewis, and I read Mere Christianity, and at the time, I was pretty hostile, and so I would you know, seek to poke holes in, uh, in his arguments. Um, I, I wasn't fully convinced. 
by mere Christianity. Um, I later, as I began to become more open to the faith, uh, read Miracles, which I thought was extraordinary. Um, I thought the ending of it was a bit weaker than uh, mm-hmm. than what I would have preferred, but the bulk of it I thought was just absolutely outstanding. And that led me further into other works by uh, C.S. Lewis, both fiction and nonfiction. Mm. Next season, we, I think we're probably going to be doing Out of the Silent Planet, and uh-huh. I know you have some thoughts about the, the sci-fi and the physics that are in there. Oh, yeah. He doesn't get gravity right. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, today we're not talking about that. We be are happy talking- to come back. Oh, that would be grand. That would be grand. Uh, today, we're talking about the trilemma, and the probably the most popular articulation of this is found in Mere Christianity, which I quoted at the beginning of the episode. But for someone who is unfamiliar with the argument, what is the trilemma? Well, basically, it's an argument that he is using to prevent his audience from from trying to dismiss Jesus as just a good moral teacher. Um, There were in the early 20th century, you know, it was still a dominantly Christian culture, in Britain, and there were lots of people who would want to say th- they wouldn't want to say anything disrespectful of Jesus, and so they would want to praise him in some way, and yet they wouldn't go all the way and conclude uh, that that he's the Son of God and the Messiah and the Savior, and I need to become a Christian and take him seriously. So there was a there was a kind of a desire on the part of many people to find a way to praise Jesus and acknowledge his significance in history and in British culture and nevertheless sort of defang Jesus so you don't have to actually follow Aslan. Mm. And one way of doing that was to say, well, he had lots of great teachings. He was a great moral teacher. You know, the golden rule is awesome and and love your enemy. I mean, that so rocks, but um, but you know this other stuff. I, I I don't. I think that's all exaggeration. I don't. I don't think he really uh, was the son of God. And so Lewis proposed this trilemma to rebut that objection. This is in Book Two, Chapter Three of Mere Christianity. And what Lewis says is, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Okay, so let's break that down. Let's look Mm -hmm. at each of the options. So what's the problem with saying that Jesus was a liar? Well, I, I think first we should we should uh, maybe comment on the overall success of the argument before we start supplementing it, because the way Lewis phrases it, it is not an argument that Jesus is God, or it's an argument 
that he is not simply a great moral teacher. Lewis is trying to block that option, and I think he does it successfully. Um, now, he doesn't mention every alternative but in that one could imagine, but given the cultural context and what were what William James would call live options for people for how to regard Jesus, um, I think he's successful because um, the the basic options that that Lewis considers, you know, like he was crazy or he was a liar, um, those were the, those were reasonable options that someone might propose as alternatives to the claim that Jesus is God. You know, if someone says he's God, well. It, most people are not, and so that person is probably either lying or crazy. And so that gives us the classic formulation of he's either the Lord, meaning the Son of God, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. And you get these three L's to help help you remember it. Um, so Lord, liar, or lunatic is the classic trilemma. And he's not—Lewis, in this passage, does not give us um, arguments for which one of those we should prefer— all he's trying to do is eliminate the claim, oh, he's just a good moral teacher. And Lewis is saying, no, he's got to be one of these other three things. And really kind of there's a fourth, which is Lucifer. If you want another L, he's the devil from hell. Um, <laughs> but in which case we've got a quadrilemma of Lord, liar, lunatic, or Lucifer. But he doesn't tell us which to prefer among those. All he says is don't go with the with the good moral teacher argument. And um and I think that that's that that is effective given the cultural context in which Lewis is operating. Um what you need to do if you want to get to the conclusion that Jesus is lord is supplement the trilemma or quadrilemma with additional arguments so that you can eliminate the other possibilities besides Lord and show that they're improbable. So um, so I think the trilemma is successful on its own, but it's a limited argument. He is not trying to show Jesus is Lord here. He's trying to eliminate an alternative to, that many people were trying to propose to that. But he admits there are other ways of regarding Jesus that would be consistent with the evidence he has mentioned, namely Jesus' claim to be God. But are they fully consistent, though? I mean, he is presupposing that the New Testament basically is accurately recording, mm -hmm. at the very least, the things that Jesus said, maybe not the things that he did, because as soon as you get into the realms of miracles, that's a little different. Uh, but is it compatible to think that Jesus was a liar based on what we see in the New Testament? Well, okay, that's why I phrase myself carefully. What Lewis is doing in this passage is he's citing Jesus's claim to be God, but he doesn't go into other material from the New Testament. And so you do need to look at other material in the New Testament for a, for, for fully orbed treatment of this. And so if you, if you want to look at, well, what are the odds that Jesus was a liar? Well, um, okay, uh, let's think about that. There have been people who have claimed to be God who were consciously lying. Um, but those same people tended not to teach the way Jesus did. They tended not to have a uh, the kind of ethics that Jesus proclaims. One of the things that is widely acknowledged uh, by not just believing Christians, but also by um, by other people, including skeptics and many skeptics at least. I mean, there are variations in every community, but many skeptics will acknowledge 
and Jewish uh, figures who also don't believe in Jesus will acknowledge that he he really did um, teach on a moral level that was superior to a lot of of what was going on in his day. The love your neighbor ethic and even love your enemies. That universal ethic of love is something that um, that you do not find in a lot of people who claim to be God or claim to be in communication with God. They often, in fact, will teach things that are against uh, basic moral principles, and they frequently will do so in a self-serving way. For example, there are figures like Muhammad or Joseph Smith who, oh, well, the prophet gets to have more wives than anybody else. Um, and and they end up either doing things that will make them money or get them lots of sex or things like that. And, and that can raise questions about, well, just how ethical is this guy? The more ethical a guy appears to be, the less likely it is that he's a liar because lying is contrary to fundamental morality. And so if we have Jesus preaching these very lofty ethics and doing so in a consistent way where he doesn't have a harem on the side and he's not got a secret bank account where he's raking in lots of money, um, then uh, that suggests his, his behavior is consistent with the ethic that he's preaching. And since the ethic that he's preaching includes truthfulness, um, we would not have good reason to suspect he was a liar. Now, it's always possible that he was a uh, he was very good at partitioning his life, um, so that you know we can't we can't eliminate it as a logical possibility that someone who acted like Jesus was secretly lying about his identity. Um, but it's not probable. The probability, based on his observed behavior, is he was telling the truth. And um, that goes up, that probability goes up if you believe also in miracles like the resurrection, because, you know, resurrection is a pretty uncommon thing. And if somebody predicts they're going to come back from the dead and then does so, I need to take that person's claims very seriously, um, including that he is the Son of God. But, um, and I'm sure we'll come back to that point, but fundamentally, um, we don't see good evidence that uh, that that Jesus acted inconsistently with his own ethic, which included truth telling. I mean, he called he refers to the devil, for example, as the father of lies, and he's clearly against the devil in the gospel, so he's also clearly against lying. Um, we don't find from from all the evidence we have, Jesus lived a life that was uh, humble economically, if we can put it that way. We know he came from a lower class family. Uh, because of the offering that's that's given at the temple when he is born, it's the offering for the lowest, uh, most economically deprived class of Israelites. And then as an, uh, he grows up as a tectone, uh, which is a kind of workman, uh, which is a lower class manual labor position. And then when he be- when he begins his ministry, he doesn't build palaces for himself. He travels around itinerantly. One of his sayings is, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man, meaning himself, doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. You know, he's living this itinerant existence supported by meager donations, and we don't have any evidence of the accumulation of wealth. We also don't have any indications of uh, the accumulation of sexual favors as, you know, he's not even married to one wife. And under Jewish law at the time, he could have taken multiple wives, but he's not even married to one. And we know that 
because if he had been married, then there would be a Mrs. Jesus out there. There would have been a <laughs> literal bride of Christ. And um, and there clearly wasn't, because in the writings of the New Testament, not only is a Mrs. Jesus never mentioned, but what is mentioned as his bride is the church, that he's married to the entire church. He also preaches an ethic of celibacy, saying this isn't for everybody, but if you can accept it, you should. And he is presented as the pinnacle of spirituality. It would be very unexpected for him not to be celibate, and all the evidence we have indicates that he was. So we see consistency in his uh, observed behavior with his moral code, and that would suggest he is not a liar. But it doesn't mean he's not crazy. Well, that is the next option. Why why should we not think that Jesus was crazy? Because even after all, in the Gospels themselves, they record his family at one point thinking that he's out of his mind. Well, actually, that passage, uh, it does not clearly indicate that. The passage you're thinking of is in the Gospel of Mark, and what it says is that his family came to see him because they were saying he's out of his mind. And the question is, who is the they that's being referred to? By this point, Jesus has become a public figure, um, and so by this point, he has this reputation, and the family has obviously heard from somebody something that has concerned them enough to come investigate. And that suggests that the reason the family came was not because the family thought he was crazy necessarily, but because they, meaning the public or the people they were hearing from, were saying he was crazy. So I actually don't, I don't think we can attribute that safely to his family. Um, what, uh, what I would say is that he, if you want to propose he's not Lord, lunatic is your best option. Um, because it's harder to disprove um, insanity than some other things. Psychology, even today, has trouble diagnosing people. Um, it's actually a serious problem in psychology that you can have different psychologists look at the same person and come to very different conclusions about their mental state. And at this distance, relying only on these documents, we have to be um, we have to be very careful. Now, obviously, his followers did not, who knew him best, so these are the people who knew him best, his followers did not regard him as crazy. They thought he was very wise and, uh, and very charismatic and very compelling. Unfortunately, that can, that's not necessarily a reliable perception because in, in the 1960s, there was a man here in California named Charles Manson, and he g gathered a group of people around him known as the Manson family, and his followers thought he was Jesus Christ because he claimed to be Jesus's reincarnation, and they thought he was, and he was very charismatic to them, and they thought he was very wise, and they thought he was very sane, and they thought he was the son of God, and, and they were completely wrong. And he then ordered them to go out and murder people. Uh, and if you want to read about that, you can look up the Tate-LaBianca murders. Um, but Charles Manson, you know, at least claimed – now, he actually may have been lying about this, but he at least claimed to be the son of God, and he was completely crazy, but he didn't strike his followers that way. And so we have to be a little careful with how did the people who knew Jesus best, his own followers, perceive him. Um, I would say – though, that based on various indications in the gospel, I don't see evidence of Jesus being mentally ill. 
um, especially not having extreme mental illness. But once again, it comes back for me to the resurrection. If a person predicts his death and then dies and predicts his resurrection and comes back from the dead, then that's a strong indicator he wasn't just crazy. He might have been crazy if he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to get in trouble with the authorities and they're going to kill me and then I'm going to come back. And if he doesn't come back, well, that's an, that would be evidence he was crazy. But if he does come back, that's evidence he's not crazy. And so I think the evidence for the resurrection ends up supporting the premise that Jesus was not simply a lunatic. Now, some people, and I think Richard Dawkins, I think I've heard him say this, they try a softer option. They don't say that he was uh, a lunatic or a liar, but just honestly mistaken on the subject of his divinity. Is that a viable option? Well, um, okay, so if we think cross-culturally, uh, there are various people who do not display symptoms of mental illness who nevertheless think they're divine in some sense, like Shirley MacLaine. Um, you know, she was a New Ager, and uh, so she and as far as I know, still is a New Ager. And she drew on elements of Eastern thought that would hold that, well, kind of really everybody is God in some sense, that God and the universe are identical and 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 so forth. And she doesn't display signs of mental illness. I'd say she's wrong. That's not God's relationship to the universe, but, but she's not mentally ill. Um, Jesus, however, didn't claim to be God in the sense that Shirley MacLaine does. Jesus claimed to be the Son, the divine Son of the one God that was worshipped by the Hebrews and that was completely separate from creation. So Jesus claimed to be an uncreated being in contrast to everybody else. All of the other, hum all of the other people on earth are created beings. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's what I'm not. So, um, so he was claiming to be God in a unique and extraordinary sense. And it's much harder to see how someone could come to this view without some kind of disordered thought process. Now, whether you want to call that mental illness or really bad logic, they amount to the same thing. Uh, there, there would have to be some kind of of disordered thought process for an ordinary human to come to the conclusion that he was uniquely God in the sense that Jesus claimed to be. Um, I don't see how um, a an adult with a proper understanding of what God meant in their culture could come to the conclusion that, oh yeah, that's what I am, without some kind of seriously disordered thought process. And so I would say whatever other um, whatever other characteristics Jesus may have displayed uh, in terms of his mental function, um, there would have to be something seriously wrong uh, for him to uh, to arrive at this delusional conclusion. Mm, so we're sort of pushed back into either liar or lunatic. Yeah, or Lucifer. That's still on the table. Or Lucifer. <laughs> well, one objection which is often raised by Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, and even some skeptics is that they reject the Lord part, that they will make the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Bart Ehrman has a book with a very similar title. So in terms of Lewis's dilemma, they would contend that Lord, in its full divine sense, isn't an option. How would you respond to this? Well, I would say that's not consistent with what we see in the Gospels. Um, now, you don't have to believe that the Gospels are inerrant. 
like you know Christians would or many Christians would uh, but they are I would certainly argue historically reliable and they do um, indicate that Jesus thought he was more than human now on the Jehovah's Witness sense they think he was an angel they think he was the Archangel Michael Muslims will think no he's just a human um, clearly Jesus claims to be more than human because he, not only do we see in the Gospel of John, uh, multiple instances where he indicates his divinity. Like, uh, for example, um, he, at one point he's talking about Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, meaning Abraham, you know, prophetically envisioned it or something. And his critics say, well, um, how can you have seen Abraham? You're not yet 50 years old. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And I am in Greek, ego emi, um, was used in Exodus as one of the names of God. Um, you know, uh, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, go to the Israelites and you're going to deliver them, and he says, well, who shall I tell them sent me? God says, say, I am has sent you. And so Jesus is using one of the names of God from the Old Testament and applying it to himself, implying he was there in divine form when uh, Abraham envisioned his day. And the critics of Jesus in this passage understand what he's saying because they immediately pick up stones to stone him because they believe he's just blasphemed God by claiming to be God. And John makes this explicit, pointing out that you know he called God his father in a unique sense, thus making himself equal with God. Because you know, if you have a son as a human being, I mean, you're, you may outrank your son in the family order, but your son is fundamentally equal to you as a human being. And so that's what Jesus is claiming with respect to his father. So we have multiple indications of this in the Gospel of John, but we find the same thing in the synoptics. Um, for example, uh, there's a passage that's sometimes called the Yoannin Thunderbolt in the Synoptics because it sounds so much like John, and it just comes out of nowhere. Jesus says, you know, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, implying he is the unique way of revelation the unique revealer of the Father, and nobody can even know the Father without the Son revealing it to him. You also have other passages that go directly in the synoptics to the uh, issue of Jesus' divinity. For example, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is on trial in front of the high priest, um, the high priest says, tell us honestly, are you the Son of the Blessed? Meaning, are you the Son of God? And Jesus acknowledges that he is, and he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, um, Daniel has a vision of God sitting on his throne in heaven, and then one like a Son of Man, it comes before him with the clouds of heaven and is enthroned beside him. Now, a lot of people aren't familiar with this, but there are various passages in, the, passages in the Old Testament that seem to indicate a kind of duality or multiplicity with God. Um, there, and if you want to, if you want to do some research on that, uh, Michael Heiser, an evangelical scholar, has written about this. <clears throat> He's got a three-hour video on YouTube called uh, "The Jewish Trinity." that you could look up. But basically, there were these passages in the Old Testament that various Jewish people would look at and say, okay, well, it sounds like God is here in this passage, but he also seems to be here. Uh, like 
sometimes the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord is identified with the Lord. And it's kind of like they're sort of both the Lord. And the uh, passage in Daniel 7, what, or I should say this led to what has in recent years been dubbed the two powers in heaven doctrine. And the two powers in heaven doctrine, the idea that there's more than one divine figure, it was later condemned uh, after, it, like in the second and third centuries AD, the, the rabbis got together and condemned this. But previously, it had been an option. And so you did have people who would talk about Yahweh and then like the second Yahweh or the lesser Yahweh. And Daniel 7, with the Son of Man being enthroned in heaven next to next to God was one of the passages that two powers believers appealed to. And so Jesus in Mark is answering the high priest's question by saying, um, yes, I am the son of the blessed in this unique sense, and you're going to see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's saying, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm the second Yahweh. And uh, so he is, even in the synoptics, indicating his divinity. It's not as obvious to us today because people typically aren't familiar with the two powers in heaven doctrine or the history of this question. But the high priest then immediately recognizes what Jesus is is claiming because he tears his robes and says, you have heard the blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Well, if Jesus were merely claiming to be the Messiah, there's nothing blasphemous about claiming to be the Messiah. The Messiah was expected. He was supposed to come and kick out the Romans and deliver Israel and restore the monarchy. That was an expected human role. There's nothing blasphemous about claiming to be that. Also, you know, there were senses in which ordinary people could claim to be sons of God, like David in the Psalms is described as a son of God in a human sense. And there's nothing blasphemous about claiming to be a son of God in that sense. There are multiple references to human sons of God in the Old Testament. But Jesus is claiming something superior to that. He's claiming to be the heavenly son of God who will sit enthroned beside him in heaven. And that makes him equal to God. And that's what gives the high priest the conclusion, this man has just blasphemed. So uh, yes, the evidence actually does indicate that Jesus claimed to be God. Whenever I meet somebody who denies that Jesus claimed to be God, I just ask them, what was he charged with that deserved death from the Jewish point of view? Uh huh. Probably the most common response I hear to the trilemma is that it is not exhaustive. And the main option that people want to add is another L, legend. Mm-hmm. So they say, why can't the accounts of Christ be legendary? And sometimes they want to go legendary in the sense of mythicists to claim that Jesus never even existed. So it's made out of whole cloth or Mm -hmm. in a more modest fashion where it's claimed that Jesus was indeed a first century teacher, that good moral teacher idea, but that his stories over time became exaggerated uh, and both in terms of his deeds, his miracles and his own divine claims. So what Mm -hmm. do you make of Jesus as a legend? Okay, so I the idea that Jesus never existed, the mythicist claim, simply does not fit with the historical evidence we have. Um, there are various ways of showing that. Uh, one of the ways that I like to use is to use a kind of where there's smoke, there's fire argument. One of the things that's very clear is that Christianity did not exist before the first century. The Christian, the Christian sources we have themselves admit that. And that's not something you want to do 
if you're a religion, because in religion, antiquity matters. And so you don't say, oh, yeah, we're brand new unless the historical facts make you say that. And, you know, they're undeniable. Um, and so in the early Christian sources and secular sources that we have indicate that Christianity began in the first century and really around, you know, the, the around AD 30. Yet, if you then track the growth of Christianity, you find that they are all over the place very quickly. Um, we have references in Roman historians to them being in Rome by the AD 60s because they played a role. Uh, Nero tried to blame the, uh, the fire of Rome that began in AD 64 on the Christian community. So we know they were there then. We also have indications they were there even earlier during the reign of Claudius, which was in the AD 40s um, and early 50s. We have indications uh, from Roman sources again that they were in other places like uh, Bithynia, which was in Turkey. Um, and we know they also started from Jerusalem. So you see this pattern that from starting from Jerusalem around AD 30, you have this massive, rapid expansion of Christianity into all these other regions. And this was in a day where we didn't have the internet, we didn't have any form of telecommunications, they didn't even have regular mail. There was no mail service except for like the Ro unless you were a Roman diplomat or military officer. They had a kind of mail system for them, but not for the general public. And that meant the only way for the Christian message to spread was by people going to these locations and preaching it. And so um, how would you have this massive evangelization effort happening if Christianity had no founder? You know, if you if you have an evangelization team, which we know about, they were, you know, um, the apostles were basically an evangelization team. How did they get sent? to do all this evangelistic work, which was difficult and dangerous. I mean, travel was extremely problematic in this age. You were subject to bandits and the weather and all kinds of things. Um, travel was very hard. And so why would these people be so motivated if they didn't have a founder who said, go and evangelize? You know, that just doesn't make any sense. If there was just some, it, it, how did the Jesus myth originate? on this model. And there just isn't any plausible way. And so I think we have to conclude, uh, based on the growth of Christianity as documented by Roman sources, that um, that there was, that the Christians were right when they said, yeah, we, we, we began around AD 30, and we had a founder who sent us to tell everybody about him, and that's what we're doing. That's by far the most uh, rational understanding of the growth of Christianity. I, I don't see any practical alternative to that. Um, then there is the question of, could the stories about Jesus be elaborated? Could they be, even though Jesus did exist, could the stories that we find in the gospel, could those be just legendary accretions? Well, um, you know, legends do develop over time, but when you study the Gospels themselves and the evidence for when they were written and who wrote them, there's not room in there for a kind of uncontrolled game of telephone. 
you know, where people repeat stories about the historical Jesus and then they get distorted over time with many retellings because that's not what the Gospels are. Um, the Gospels, I've, I've done a very careful study. Most people have not. Even people, uh, even even many Bible scholars just tend to accept the dates that they're told for the Gospels and they don't really study the issue themselves. But I've done a, a very detailed study of the writing of the Gospels, of the dates for when they were written. And the evidence points to them being written between AD 55 and AD 65, which is, you know, AD 55 would be like uh, just um, 22 years after the crucifixion. It, which occurred in 8033. And I can remember things that occurred 22 years ago. I mean, for me, a bunch of people can. If you remember 9-11, guess what? That was 21 years ago. And oh so goodness. if you can remember the year 2000, that was 22 years ago. So if you can remember events like that, those memories can easily be preserved down to the time of the writing of the first gospel, which was Mark. And then the others are written within 10 years of that. And the Gospels were written, we have very good evidence they were written by the people whose names are on them. And um, furthermore, we have very good evidence that they are based on e either directly on eyewitness testimony or within one or two links of an eyewitness. So for example, the Gospel of Mark is based on the preaching of Peter. Peter was an eyewitness, so Mark is only one link away from the events themselves. Others like John, John is explicitly written by an eyewitness. So it's zero degrees of separation from the events themselves. It's the eyewitness who's writing this. And if you want uh, evidence for that claim, I would suggest checking out the book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by the British scholar, scholar Richard Balcom. It's outstanding. And uh, it, it goes through this in great detail. So I don't think that there's room. I mean, I could say more about all this, but uh, I don't think that we have a good case for this material being legendary accretions. It was written down too quickly by people who were in too close a connection with the events for it to simply be legends that got distorted over time by multiple retellings. And I would add to that that they didn't just spring out of nowhere. The church had been spreading and preaching for years before that. These these were now finally getting some of these things written down. And if it presented a Jesus that was radically different from the one that they heard about, surely somebody would have started asking questions. Yeah. And your point about dates, I would imagine, I think I heard William Lane Craig say this, that even if we went with the later dates, the, the later mm -hmm. possible uh, compositions, even then you still don't really have time for legend to develop so quickly. No. Oh, I would say that obviously if they are dated later, like between 70 and 100, which is what's commonly proposed, um, you it, the case is less strong, but it still, it still doesn't show that we have legends here. That's still remarkably early. Hmm. Well, now that we've looked through the various possibilities and extra possibilities, uh, what else do you want to say about this argument, its strengths, its weaknesses? Uh, if you want to maybe touch on the Lucifer option, well, I did because I don't want to leave that I don't want to leave that unclosed. Um, so, so uh, you know, various people in in Jesus's ministry accused him of being in league with the devil. Um, however, once again, now there's there are problems with that. One of them 
is that his ethical teaching is quite good. And you we wouldn't expect uh, the devil to be saying, love your neighbor <laughs> and love God. Those are the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You don't expect the devil to be – or his agent to be saying that. Um, you don't expect the devil or his agent to be saying, love your neighbor as yourself and pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies and do unto others as you want them to do unto you. This All this love stuff for God and, and neighbor is is not really what the devil's about. Um, so that of itself is a mark against this theory. And when you couple that with the, uh, with the resurrection, um, I think you again have to take Jesus's claim, which is that I'm the son of God very seriously. And unless you can come up with competing evidence of diabolism, um, you, you really don't have a basis for claiming that he was on the wrong side. I mean, you can propose anything you want, but the question is, can you back it up with evidence? And the evidence supports Jesus being the son of God, not being the son of the devil. Now, you've mentioned the resurrection a few times. Would Mm -hmm. you therefore try and bolster this argument, this trilemma with, say, something like the minimal facts hypothesis? Is that the direction that you would go? So we should probably explain what that is. Uh, There are various scholars... um, who have said, look, you don't need to kind of make this broad cumulative case argument for Christianity. You can look at a certain small number of facts that basically every scholar is going to agree to, like Jesus existed, uh, he was he was crucified by the Romans, he really died, his tomb was found empty, and people proclaimed him to have been raised from the dead. And if you look at alternative explanations for those facts— they they're very improbable like um well the disciples went to the wrong tomb okay maybe that's they found an empty tomb and that's why they thought jesus had been raised from the dead but um okay so um why didn't the authorities go to the right tomb and produce the body and smash that claim right out of the gate um, because you know somebody knew where Jesus was buried, and the authorities would have been highly interested in uh, in shutting down this uh, Christian claim before it got off the ground. So why didn't Jesus's opponents just go and produce the body? Um, it really does look like his tomb was empty. So how did it? Uh, now I should say I think that the this kind of minimal facts approach has a lot of merit. I make a tweak to it though. That, um, that I haven't seen others do. As far as I know, this is unique to the way I argue this. But there's one more fact that needs to be brought into the picture to strengthen the argument. And that is the fact that not only d- did the disciples claim to see the risen Jesus, they claimed to see the ascension. Because, and that's important because that's the explanation for why, if you're in the first century, you can't just go to Jerusalem today and go meet Jesus and ask him about all this. He's not here anymore. He ascended to heaven, and he's going to come back from heaven one day. And so um, so 
that is a very important claim that is, you know, it's all over the New Testament. It's not, I mean, the ascension is mentioned at the end of Luke. It's mentioned at the beginning of Acts. It's mentioned in Paul's epistles multiple times. You have all this attestation that we're, Jesus is in, is in heaven now and we're waiting for him to come back. All of those imply the ascension. And so the ascension is a very important fact that I think needs to be included in the case, because even if you say something like, well, maybe um, maybe Jesus was wounded on the cross but and kind of went into a coma but didn't die, and then they buried him, and then he somehow in that revived in the tomb. This is known as the swoon theory. He swooned on the cross, and then he revived in the tomb and somehow summoned the strength to force the big rock away that was supposed to keep people out and Somehow he managed to dislodge that and get out and appear to the disciples so they saw him, you know, alive again. That doesn't explain how he could fly. You know, it does not explain the ascension at all. And so um, so when you add the ascension to the minimal facts argument, it eliminates a bunch of the alternative possibilities in an even more dramatic way. Like, oh, maybe Jesus had a twin, and it was the twin who got crucified on the cross. Well, the rate of identical twinship is very low, so this is an ad hoc hypothesis that has a low intrinsic probability, very low. And then, uh, if so, if one twin gets crucified and buried, well, okay, why didn't the authorities produce the body? Second, um, if Jesus had a twin, why didn't his intimate disciples know about it? Because if you know, if you know these two twins and you see one of them get killed, and then you seem to see the same guy walking up to you, the first thing you're going to think is, "Oh, hi, you're the twin. How's it going?" <laughs> um and and so it's improbable that the disciples wouldn't know about the twin but then we come to this more basic fact twins can't fly and so as a result the ascension would be completely unexplained so i think that i think that uh, one can make a very strong case for the resurrection especially if one includes the fact that the early Christian community was, you know, universally agreed, Jesus is in heaven now, he ascended. I never thought I would associate the movie The Prestige with The Ascension, because uh-huh. that's the same thing. Uh, and the mm-hmm. other thing that I think you'd have a problem with is that you've got to get rid of that twin, because you can't have a Jesus wandering around right, uh, yeah. for people to ask questions. It's like, didn't I see that guy die? Mm-hmm. What happened? Yeah. Wow. Well, that was great. Jimmy Aiken, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I hear the call for final drinks at the Moss Eisley Cantina. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and your other work, such as your book, A Daily Defense, or your podcast, such as Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World? Okay, so um, people can go to find out about Catholic Answers, where I work at catholic.com. We have tons of audio and video and text resources available online for you for free, as well as an online shop where you can get my books and other materials. Um, people can also go to jimmyaken.com, uh, which is my personal website and is kind of a hub for all things Jimmy Aiken. Uh, you do need to spell my name correctly to get there. That's the only thing I ask. And the internet requires. Um, J- Jimmy is spelled the normal way, J-I-M-M-Y. 
And Aiken is spelled the normal way. It is just four letters, exactly like it sounds. Aiken. So it's A-K-I-N. There are no T's, E's, S's, or extra I's in there. Just four letters, A-K-I-N. So you can go to jimmyakin.com, and um, you will find links there to the various podcasts I'm on, including Mysterious World. You can also go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash jimmyakin, and we have uh, video versions of uh, of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World there. Like I said, we've got a new mystery that comes out every Friday. They're really fascinating, um, and we look at them from the perspectives of faith and reason. So it's whether it's the Kennedy assassination or Bigfoot or um, historical mysteries or religious mysteries or psychic powers or anything like that, anything mysterious, check out Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. And I'm also trying to build my YouTube channel. So when you go by there, it's also in any podcast directory. So if you like to listen to, in, to an audio podcast on your phone or whatever, you can, you can do that. Just look it up in Apple or Stitcher or wherever. Um, but if you do check out the video version at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, I am trying to grow my channel. So please uh, subscribe and hit the bell notification so that YouTube is forced to tell you whenever I have new content. And I only, I don't just put out Mysterious World there. I also put out apologetic videos and you can see my Bart Ehrman debate there. So another reason to go by. And on your website, jimmyakin.com, spelled the normal way, uh, you've got tons of resources that you had pre-written in anticipation of that debate. So if anyone has ever read any of Bart's stuff, this is the place you need to go. Thank you. And you can get there easily by going to jimmyakin.com slash Bart. And your co-host at Mysterious World, Don. Listeners, if you've ever enjoyed the chapter markings that we have in Pints with Jack, he's the guy who showed me how to do that. So you can thank ah, him. <laughs> cool. And thanks to Jimmy for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening to our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. We now have several Debras. So Deborah 1, Marvin, Joel, Thomas, Deborah 2, Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and make your guess. Liar, lunatic, Lucifer, legend or lord. And please join us next time when we'll be wrapping up Apologetics Month and I'll be interviewing Dr. Holly Ordway about imaginative apologetics. And we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>